What do y'all know about the concept album? You know, a collection of songs based around a central theme or narrative, like the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, or Pink Floyd with The Wall. Concept albums expand the art form by turning a collection of songs into a singular experience for some larger artistic purpose. These albums exist in all genres. In R&B, most notably, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, and Here My Dear. Also, Parliament's Mothership Connection, Once Upon a Time by disco queen Donna Summer, and the more obscure Caught Up by raunchy soul godmother Millie Jackson, among many others. On April 2nd, 1996, Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite was released and had my full attention. This album is a seductive fusion of R&B, smooth soul, funk, soft disco, and jazz. A thirst-quenching alternative from the sample-heavy hip-hop soul, which was now a mainstay on Black radio. His stylish romanticism challenged the bump-and-grind hypersexuality that was increasingly prevalent in mainstream R&B. Even Maxwell's look was distinct. A model fine brother with a blowout afro and a retro soul bohemian vibe. We were definitely in for something very different. This exquisite concept album was so mature, so slick. I just think about the cover. A pair of ladies' heels on a hotel carpet. It kind of says everything about the experience you're in for. The narrative here was Maxwell inviting us into a brief romantic encounter, yet experiencing the full range of emotions of a relationship. Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite is an expansion of the neo-soul sound, but Maxwell wasn't D'Angelo. There weren't any hip hop overtones here. Maxwell was all jazzy, smooth soul, funky grooves and after hours disco parties. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the ways 90s R&B was stretching, shifting, and reshaping itself while exploring the themes of romance, love, sex, heartbreak, and everything in between. Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite elevates these themes with a stylistic approach to sensuality, like on the slow jam, Till the Cops Come Knocking. He turned romantic love into pure religious worship on his chart topper, Ascension, Don't Ever Wonder, with lyrics like, you're the highest of the high. He gives us an infectious neo-disco funk groove with Something Something, which is a personal favorite. Other wondrous tracks like Reunion, Lonely's Only Company Parts 1 and 2, and Sweet Lady, The Proposal Jam, make this musical excursion a sultry and passionate affair. Honestly, the album feels like an after-the-after-party kind of album. It's grown, sophisticated soul. Like Neo, Quiet Storm, maybe? I've always found this album to be a kindred spirit of Sade's sound, somewhere in the DNA of Barry White's lush orchestrations, a musical son of Prince, Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield, with the dash of Stevie for good measure. But he pushes that lineage forward into a new age. On this 12-track romantic opus, we travel between the boundless yet intimate spaces of a relationship. R&B has always concerned itself with the depths of our emotions and desires. And Maxwell was here to remind us just how vast and cosmic those desires and emotions were. 1996 was bustling with new experiences for me. New home, new school. Even when I remember one of, if not the first CD I let spin on my stereo system in my new bedroom that fall. Released in April, SWV's sophomore album, New Beginning, mirrored my own transition on a path of fresh starts. 
The trio had more time than ever before to craft a display of evolution, expansion, and addition to what they could do creatively and sonically. Breaking away from the swing to more soulful renditions, songwriting, and working with other producers, SWV had their hearts set on a more mature image now that they were firmly in their 20s. It's been said, and I have to agree, that one needs to look no further for the height of SWV's welcomed makeover than on the track, Use Your Heart. Written by Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams, combined as the producer unit called the Neptunes, Use Your Heart is a romantic cool-down anthem that does something else we haven't quite seen from SWV before. It gave member and songstress Taj Johnson George the bridge to blow the stone off of, sneak peeking that each one of these sisters did have a voice. This is only confirmed further for the spoil when Taj takes lead on one of my favorite singles from New Beginning, It's All About You. And Lily also shines and brings it home with the soft mid-tempo, Don't Waste Your Time, a song she co-wrote with Chucky Thompson and Faith Evans. For me, their new beginning and new decisions were about a more immersive experience with their unified objectives. For a more personal artistic expression and approach to who they were and what they were going to be. I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast, Robin Shanae. I'm writer and professor Ashley Blackwell, and this is Rhythm and Schooled. Breaking down 90s R&B, one year at a time. Episode seven, 1996, one in a million. February 1996. The alternative progressive rap trio, The Fugees, dropped their second album, The Score, which would become the third best-selling album of that year and hailed as one of the greatest albums of the 90s and eventually one of the greatest albums of all time. Now, why am I bringing up The Fugees on this R&B podcast? Because it feels almost impossible not to discuss the interdependent relationship of hip-hop and R&B in the 90s without mentioning how this album is at the center of the evolving paradigm of these two musical genres. Made up of Wyclef, Praz, and Lauryn Hill, the enormous success of the Fugees has as much to do with hip-hop as it has to do with R&B. The Fugees were unlike any other hip-hop group of the time. Their flawless production, unique flows, intricate storytelling and lyricism, and of course their MVP, Lauryn Hill, both a lyrical dynamo and a remarkable vocalist, basically put them in a category of their own. With chart-topping hits like Ready or Not and Fuji La, their distinct approach to rhyming and their homages to classic soul cannot be understated. Ready or Not being a Delphonic song and Fuji La flipping Tina Marie's Quiet Storm slow jam Ooh La La felt slightly different from what Puffy and other producers were doing with classic soul sampling. Lauren's luminous vocals were breathing new life into these songs. But it was their cover of Roberta Flagg's 70 soul ballad, Killing Me Softly, that became a massive hit record and catapulted them into superstardom. The cover is hip-hop and soul. Lauren's aching vocal takes center stage over the head-nodding beat. Here we are again, listening to artists, honoring musical legends, and at the same time pushing the lineage forward. So yeah, I feel like when we talk about the score, we have to acknowledge how R&B and soul were crucial to its success. And yes, y'all, we have to acknowledge the gift that is Lauren Hill. At a later date on this podcast, we will discuss in much more detail how Lauren became a crucial figure in the pantheon of 90s R&B. 
But in this moment, her multifaceted abilities were significant to the success of the score and the future of R&B. Lauren's superpower is her vulnerability. That's what shines on Killing Me Softly and all the other tracks she sings on. She is also noted as the best MC in the Fugees. Her magnetic flow, vivid, surgically precise lyricism, and rocket-launching delivery is astonishing. It has been said, never has a singer been this amazing as a rapper or a rapper been this amazing as a singer. With the tremendous success of Killing Me Softly and the album itself, we are at a critical point where the boundaries of hip-hop and R&B are blurring more and more, becoming fuzzier and fuzzier. And the significance of Lauryn Hill as an artist, both a rapper and a singer, is now at the crux of this defining moment. From Boston down to DC, 1996 began with one of the biggest snowstorms of the 20th century, all at the tip of a federal government shutdown. Whether so severe that some couldn't make it to the comfort of their own home for days, lives were lost, and billions of dollars in damage was estimated. Now, if you were a youth, you were absolutely elated by the actual factuals of basically no school for at least two weeks straight and made a beeline outdoors in snowsuit armor with friends in the wintry oasis, making literal mountains of snow your playground for a chilly minute. In sadder events, many in the United States monitored the news pertaining to the tragic matter of a six-year-old girl and beauty pageant participant named John Benet Ramsey, who was found dead in her home on December 26 in Colorado. The case remains unsolved, so with even more certainty, it continues to swirl in the zeitgeist with tabloid covers and internet forum theories, evolving to television documentaries, daytime talk show and primetime specials, as well as a lifetime film, fueling America's obsession with reality and true crime. On another note that was bittersweet for those who lost loved ones to the battle that is HIV-AIDS, the 11th Annual International AIDS Conference in Vancouver presented some hope a new treatment and therapy for the currently surviving that could potentially prolong life with the virus in a way unthinkable before. Technology was also evolving. We were still in the midst of wondering what to use the internet or the World Wide Web for, besides chatting on AOL Instant Messenger after school with your friends. <laughs> Remember tying up the phone line and actually having the patience to wait for a web page to load? And one of the year's best websites, according to Time Magazine, was a little URL called Amazon.com, where you could search for books and read as well as post reviews of them. Hotmail was also launched in July. And President Bill Clinton was reelected to a second term. Meanwhile, in music, Janet Jackson signed a four-album record-breaking contract with Virgin Records, estimated at $80 million, which was described as a, quote, an unprecedented fee, end quote, in the industry. With a $135,000 advance and basement studio upgrade that was in Wyclef's uncle's home, the Fugees, as Robin mentioned earlier, released their second album, The Score, in February, an album that went on to become number one on the Billboard 200 and six times platinum by the next year. Their smash cover of Roberta Flack's rendition of Killing Me Softly that Miss Lauren Hill took lead on was inescapable. I never really got sick of the song, but oh man, did I get sick of that music video. This was the first album that my mother refused to buy for me because of the parental advisory sticker on the cover. Oh, to the hypocritical boomer-esque parenting style of selective <laughs> censoring. So I did what any kid would do and asked my crush to dub his copy on tape for me, which he graciously did, and I was smart enough not to label it. 
Prince, or the artist formerly known as, after an 18-year record deal with Warner Brothers, was finally free from that contract, and to celebrate, he released the three-disc set titled Emancipation, with one of my favorite rap songs in Prince fashion titled Face Down. The long battle with his label leaned on many factors. Prince was resistant to standard album release timelines. He felt that art doesn't function mechanically, it is organic. Prince additionally felt that he wanted to produce music that gave something positive to listeners, not just hits for profit. And because of this, he legally changed his name to The Symbol in 1993 and publicly wore the word slave on his cheek in 1995. So in 1996, this was an artistic and personal high for Prince, even if it wasn't a commercial one. The top Billboard songs were Macarena by Lost Del Rio. I'm embarrassed to admit I, I actually like this song. Mm-hmm. One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boyz II Men, Gag, and the slapper Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion. That is still my jam. (laughs) But something else profound happened in music this year. Michelle Ndeogelocello, I am not saying that correctly, but rock with me here, appeared on MTV to preface her music video for a new single off of her latest second album, Peace Beyond Passion. The song was titled Leviticus Faggot. Her purpose? to interrogate its use in the context of scorn, hatred, and condemnation. As a queer woman herself with lyrical content that pays homage and compassion to the many LGBTQIA youth that are thrown to waste by their families due to religious and gender normative intolerance, she paints a glaring picture of the dire consequences of these acts on the victims with funky rhythms and melodic poetry. The F word is used quite a bit. There are images of self-harm and same-sex attraction that many networks were not ready for and refused to air without edits, including MTV. BET flat out refused to air it at all. But its visibility did, however, make a small ripple into public awareness for the necessity of addressing these issues and the negative effects it had on generations prior that continued to persist. In film, Hollywood's action adventures and thrillers made the biggest bank at the box office, like Independence Day, Twister, and Mission Impossible. Add Disney to the money machine output, releasing some of the highest grossing films of the year, including 101 Dalmatians, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and The Rock. But the unsuspecting hit, bringing the year to a close with Scream, a film written as a love letter to the modern horror genre by Kevin Williamson, who managed to also inject youth culture and American true crime obsession into a film that would go on to reverberate for multiple generations. It is noted to have resurrected the horror genre with a self-referential approach as well. The most watched television series remained to be ER, Seinfeld, and Friends, but New Kid on the Block was NBC's Suddenly Susan starring Brooke Shields. The Brandy Star Vehicle TV series Moesha premiered in January on UPN, and many looked back with Will at the empty living room in the series finale of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Celebrations of a life lived included the likes of Ella Fitzgerald, Gene Kelly, and George Burns, and one particular life taken too soon. Tupac Shakur, born in 1971 to Black Panther revolutionary Afeni Shakur, the outspoken, the flawed, the compassionate, the wild, the misunderstood, the complicated poet, rapper, and actor was killed in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas on September 13th. Only days later on September 18th was his music video for I Ain't Mad At Ya, a single off of his double album All Eyes On Me, released with the theme of Tupac being shot and transitioning into the afterlife where many Black entertainment greats of the past resided. I remember my mother obsessing over that video because of its eerie timing. This was a loss that would be felt, analyzed, remembered, and theorized for decades to come. It still is. 
There is currently an excellent multi-part docuseries available that chronicles the relationship between Tupac and Miss Afeni titled Dear Mama on Netflix and Hulu. Wow, another year where so much happened. I don't even know where to begin, but I'll start with the loss of Tupac because it's so seared in my brain. It felt very surreal at the time, honestly. His loss was absolutely crushing to an entire generation. You know, in a similar way to Kurt Cobain's death, we were losing artists who channeled and articulated our emotions, our anguish with the world around us, and our own personal struggles. And I've always been a fan of Tupac, the rapper, the actor, the artist. He's such a charismatic presence, as well as an enormous talent. His passing would eventually reach mythic proportions, and he'd become an iconic figure in the years after his death. But anytime I listen to his music, it's hard not to still think of this the loss because he was just so young. On a lighter note, that Fuji's album was everything to me. <laughs> um, I adored Lauren Hill because at that time, um, I was 16. I was a poet, a wannabe rapper. I was so empowered and inspired by Lauren's intricate lyricism and vocal prowess. She's just she was just undeniably gifted. The score album is still one of my favorite albums. Shout out to Proz and Wyclef. And although I didn't love Killing Me Softly the way everyone else did, I think it's probably because of the massive amount of radio play it received. But yet and again, this is how you cover a song. Take it to another dimension. And that they did. You know, also thinking about Prince being free from his contract and his Emancipation album, which really has some gems on there. My favorite song on it is probably Somebody, Somebody. But most interestingly, I think this was the first time Prince was covering songs. He covered the Delphonics, Betcha by Golly Wow, Joan Osborne's One of Us, and Bonnie Raitt's I Can't Make You Love Me. And they're all really solid renditions. And yes, yes, 1996, the year of Scream. (laughs) (laughs) If you know me, you know Scream is one of my favorite movies of all time. And the way it resurrected the horror genre and gave us some of the most memorable characters and dialogue cannot be understated. It was major. And now for the top 20 R&B singles of 1996, according to Playback FM. Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. This song has become so polarizing. Folks either love it or hate it. I'm one of the folks who love it. I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly. Killing Me Softly by the Fugees. The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony. Don't Let Go Love by En Vogue. This was a major hit for En Vogue. I love the vocals on this, and I love the rock edge to the song. No Diggity by Blackstreet. That Bill Withers sample was perfect here. An inescapable song in 1996, but I really, really dug it. Twisted by Keith Sweat. Before You Walk Out of My Life by Monica. Nobody by Keith Sweat featuring Athena Cage. I love this song. Honestly, this song, as well as Twisted, the album, Keith seemed to effortlessly transition from the 80s to the 90s, which is worth noting. Also, Athena Cage is a tremendous vocalist. 
You're Making Me High by Toni Braxton, How Do You Want It by Tupac, Not Gonna Cry by Mary J. Blige, Down Low, Nobody Has to Know by R. Kelly featuring Ronald and Ernie Isley. This was the emergence of Ronald Isley as the Mr. Big character. And the Isley brothers, who have been around since the 50s, suddenly receiving adoration from a whole new generation of listeners, which is truly worth noting. Always Be My Baby by Mariah Carey. Really love this song, but that So So Deaf remix is essential. California Love by Tupac. Unbreak My Heart by Toni Braxton. Hit Me Off by New Edition. Very much looking forward to delving into the return of New Edition later on in this episode. I Believe in You and Me by Whitney Houston. Pony by Genuine. You're the One by SWV. And never has trying to take someone's band sounded so cheerful, upbeat, and carefree. (laughs) So this is a lot. So I need to break down my reactions into three categories. So songs I loved. Return of the Mac. He's like the Don't Be Cruel era Bobby Brown's British cousin, I'm convinced. (laughs) He's been song referenced by Little Kim. He is the first Black male solo artist to reach number one in the UK, which we have to respect. Yes. And what I love about this song is its confidence and that its R&B doesn't quite sound like much of what was happening during this moment. And maybe it's because it's from overseas. It's kind of old school, not quite fully American either. I also really like Nobody by Keith Sweat. I like the duet aspect of it. It has a salacious quality to it that you can't help but sing along to, even in front of mixed generational company, perhaps. (laughs) I'm glad uh, Cluck Close singer Athena Cage comes in to be the template for the ladies, because I like singing her part, too. I like the the man part, and then you get ready. You're like, you're ready for the lady part, and then you (laughs) Her voice is just so crisp on that, too. Yeah, it's fantastic. You're Making Me High by Tony Braxton. So MTV overplayed this video, but I never got tired of it. It was such a great compliment to the song. It was sexy, Mm -hmm. fun, and it was funny. Each time I watched it, I was taken aback seeing Maxine Shaw for for living single fans here. (laughs) Just seeing her in a different setting. And then also Tisha Campbell as well, because I was so used to her being Gina on Martin. And folks, if you have not heard her do interviews or just talk randomly on social media, she is not Gina at all. (laughs) There's nobody to mess with. And just more of Babyface putting his stank on great music. Mm-hmm. I love to hear his vocals on in the background of the track. It's so soothing to me. It's so, it's so him, but it's just still so great. And the remix with Foxy Brown isn't too much of a remix because it's just her kind of like singing on the track. But I really, I'm, I'm here for the era where rappers were just singing on already established hits. Yes. And I really liked her on it. Always Be My Baby by Mariah Carey. Now, I like the original, but it's all about the remix here. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, I, this, even to this day, I love putting on Spotify and listening to that remix. I love the Jermaine Dupree So So Deaf element to it. Mm-hmm. I love the SOS band sample with Mariah keeping the vocal essence of the original while Debrat comes in to compound its quality. It's a song that transports me back to little Ashley in Upper Darby, PA, and I enjoy it very much. Also Pony by Genuine, I have to admit. So a timeless song that is both the life of the party and the punchline because we all know 
<laughs> or imagine that this song is played at every single male strip affair. I've been told. I've been told. This was a lot of our introduction to that sound. Like, what was that? It was Timbaland's production that was unnatural in the most natural ways. It's the only way I can describe it right now. Perfectly described. <laughs> and I still laugh because we were actually singing, if you're horny, let's do it, ride it, my pony. And I can't, I can't. And yes, we were singing this in ninth grade social studies. I remember, I don't remember my friend's name where we weren't friends, but we were like cool acquaintances because we were all like the like the Randy kids who were in like remedial <laughs> social studies because none of us tested well. <laughs> Smart, but not good test takers. And sure enough, everyone was singing Pony. Like it was literally like lyric down the lane. Like one person would take one part of the lyric and someone else take the other part of the lyric. It was funny. I love it. So, you know, it, it was black and white kids singing this song. Listen. <laughs> and I just want to shout out the late, great Static Major, who also co-wrote this Raunch Fest. <laughs> and of course, You're the One by SWV. Again, the way I was not paying attention to these lyrics back then, because SWV has been in these reality TV streets as of late. So the You're the One lyrical breakdown still continues to come up. Like, what your girl don't know won't hurt her, etc. Is that effortlessly sneaky swag that SWV had. So, moving on to songs I liked okay, but didn't jam too regularly. So, I really like No Diggity by Blackstreet. Twisted by Keith Sweat. Before You Walk Out of My Life by Monica. And songs that I like, but they played them too damn much. Killing Me Softly by the Fugees. The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony, and Don't Let Go Love by En Vogue. But, you know, all in all, this was a very fun and bountiful year for R&B singles that was targeted right at the youth. I love that breakdown, actually. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you. The 39th annual Grammy Awards were held on February 26, 1997, honoring music from 1996. The nominees for Best Rhythm and Blues Song of 1996 are Your Secret Love by Luther Vandross, Exhale Shoop Shoop by Whitney Houston, You're Making Me High by Tony Braxton, You Put a Move on My Heart by Tamia, Sitting Up in My Room by Brandy, and the winner was XL Shoop Shoop by Whitney Houston. What are your thoughts, Ashley? Your secret love. I like the song. <laughs> but I think the composition here is stiff because you put a move on my heart. I think that's a perfect song. And I think it's the strongest here. But I think if we're going off of visibility, marketing, sales, and popularity, in a way, Exhale is the definitive R&B song of the year for its wide impact culturally. Oh, yeah. And as much as I love Exhale and Whitney in her R&B bag, and it definitely deserves all the acclaim and the awards, but if I was handing out this particular award, it would most probably go to Tamia for You Put a Move on My Heart, which is truly an incredible song, just so passionately and perfectly delivered by Tamia. I also want to note that Babyface penned three of the songs in this category. I think 
Don't quote me now, but I think he's written at least one song that's been nominated in this category since our 1990 episode, which is mind-blowing to think about. I'm starting to believe that songwriting is Babyface's superpower. Most definitely (laughs) is. Doing the Impossible, this is where we choose just a few of our favorite tracks from the year. And truly, for the first time, it was really difficult to pick just five. I went to ask for forgiveness for all of the other singles I am not choosing. (laughs) So my first is Escape, Can't Hang. Again, I don't know what it is about that Jermaine Dupri reduction bounce that gets me going on this track, but I love it. Their fourth single, featuring my fave MC Light off of their second album, Off the Hook. Can't Hang samples Bernard Wright and Southern Girl by Maze featuring Frankie Beverly, fittingly so. And in sultry escape fashion, masking freaky with finesse, asking that someone in their lives if they can hang or betting they can't. Jermaine Dupree has a signature bounce to his songs that I absolutely love. And here is no exception. Love the attitude of the song. It's one of the standouts on the album, in my opinion. Also on my list here is male group Vision, who had a single titled Housekeeper. So they were originally known as Vision. These Brooklyn natives made the formulaic shift from gospel to R&B, and Teddy Riley managed to help them secure a deal with MJJ Music, where they released their first album titled Personal. Their first single was Housekeeper, aka the instrumental of the Quiet Storm interludes during this era. This progressive benchmark for gender politics had the men on full-time home duty making sure the breakfast was cooked, clothes were washed, and bath water was ready. Gina Thompson, The Things You Do, but it was the Bad Boy remix. So on this episode of As the Bad Boy Spins, Puff Daddy was asked by folks at Gina Thompson's record label, Mercury Records, to do a remix. Puff arranged the vocals while Melody was a collaboration with Rodney Darkchild Jerkins. More on him later. Puff... 112, who added background vocals as well, and Gina herself. Both Jerkins and Puff co-produced, but something was missing. A rapper. To ice the cake for a hit, Puff brought in Missy Elliott, a name we've heard here before, and she was a force that had been more behind the scenes than in front for some time, and made onlookers and listeners stop in their tracks when she dropped, hee how, hee how doing it terribly, but you got me. I know I did. Missy's cumulative bars exuded her charisma and unique flow that would buoy her into megastardom. But for Gina, this was her peak. Yo, those bad boy remixes almost always seem to take us on to the next level. Missy's verse on this feels groundbreaking because Everyone knew who she was after this. That he, 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 how is now (laughs) iconic. Put it in the Smithsonian. I stopped in my tracks. Also, another choice here for me was, without a doubt, Mista and their song Black Bay Molasses. Looking back, this song was one of the first overt statements on personal mental health I had ever heard. Sometimes I'd rather give up. Is life worth living? There's going to be some heartache and pain. I just got to be strong and hold on. These are some of the sentiments streaming through this blues and rhythm river that this quartet belts with a strong lead and perfect harmony, 
a teen collective once again blurring the lines of age versus maturity. The songbirds here are Daryl Allen, Brandon Brown, Byron Reeder, and a then-unknown Bobby Valentino originating in Atlanta, they capture the essence of a more introspective B-side to the R&B teen themes of budding love, crushes, and relationships. Produced by Organized Noise, Blackberry Molasses peaked at number 13 on the U.S. R&B. Attention like this wouldn't replicate, and the group went their separate ways in 1997. Yeah, this to me might be one of the most significant yet criminally overlooked songs of the 90s, several things are happening here and they're all quite profound. First, you have a male R&B teen group, Black Boys, singing about clinical depression, leaning hard into the blues aspect of rhythm and blues. The lyrics are quite stark in many ways. A song about struggling with finding a will to keep going It's a really startling song, and a lot of people really didn't know how to receive it or what to do with it aside from the catchy chorus. I also love the guitar intro. This is far more alternative to the contemporary R&B heavily played on the radio at the time. Honestly, the song gives me chills sometimes. It's brilliant, and I wish folks talked about it more. It's also one of my favorites listed on our About page. If you want to go to rhythmandschoolpodcast.com and check that out. So my last pick here is Shantae Savage's I Will Survive. So Robin has previously said it best about covers, so there's no need to retread there. But man, talk about a cover that prioritizes originality in production, melody, and vocal arrangement. Gloria Gaynor's original disco-infused rendition is a pop music staple. We all know this. A Grammy-winning sensation that can be found on almost every karaoke list in any country. It's in the Library of Congress for its cultural impact. It was sung by Queen Latifah on Living Single, Jennifer Love Hewitt and I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. And then there was Shantae Savage, a Chicago singer who made her mark writing We Gotta Love Thing that eventually became a hit for CeCe Peniston. She and producer Steve Hurley slowed the disco classic down and intentionally gave it an R&B vibe. To me, it sounds gothic and very 1996. Can't really explain what that means. But Shantae's ad-libs is what let the listening audience know who she was as an artist with such a well-known song. That's a feat that's difficult to achieve. Shantae's I Will Survive lit up Chicago radio stations before going on to national acclaim and platinum status. Ah, yes. If you're gonna remake a classic song, you better be distinct. And Shantae really did that. She took those lyrics personally. While the original by Gloria Gaynor emphasizes the triumph, to me, it feels like Shantae emphasizes the struggle to triumph, if that makes sense. The lyrics take on another level of meaning here. Her version feels almost in conversation to the one who hurt her. Gloria's original is anthemic, centering the collective ability to overcome. Also want to note Shantae's really distinctive voice and delivery. So glad you picked this, Ashley, because folks really don't talk about this when it comes to dope covers. Noting its tonal essence is about the struggle to triumph is so perfectly put. Thank you for that. Like you have a way with words sometimes <laughs> that just like you you really get into the nuance of, of all of this. And I also absolutely cannot leave this segment without noting a few honorable mentions. It's just not fair. And I need to shout these songs out. <laughs> So let's get down by Tony, Tony, Tony and DJ Quick. I love the video. I love the women in it. They're beautiful. They're black. They've got a style about them that I wanted back in 1996. And I kind of still do, honestly. (laughs) Kissing You by Total. 
Back to the World by Tevin Campbell. I think that's one of his more underrated songs. It's so good. <laughs> Miss You, Come Back Home. Really the remix with Monifa and Heavy D. Ascension, Don't Ever Wonder by Maxwell. Thank you, Robin, for so beautifully giving Maxwell his flowers in this episode. And In My Bed by Drew Hill. I'm not going to lie. I still sing like Cisco when no one's around. <laughs> Like, I can sing like Cisco. I love that. This song is so melodramatic. I love it. It's, it's so, yes, you're right. It is so melodramatic. And thank you for mentioning all of these songs because 1996 was packed with heat. And it felt almost impossible to select just five for this episode. But this is me attempting the impossible. My five songs. So I'm starting with Not Gonna Cry by Mary J. Blige. Like I said in the previous episode, when this song came on the radio, you couldn't tell 16-year-old me that I wasn't a 35-year-old divorcee <laughs> with two children. Babyface penned this song for Mary J. Blige for the Wayne's Excel soundtrack. Like I've also said before, Babyface's gift was understanding the persona of an artist so well that he could write a song for them that not only channels that persona, but also expands on it artistically. Post my life's tremendous success, Mary suddenly became the vessel for so many Black women music listeners to express and console their pains and sorrows. Mary felt like your sister, your auntie, your best friend, your favorite cousin that you could be vulnerable with, share your deepest and darkest secrets with, cry on the shoulder of. With this song, Mary channeled the Waiting to Exhale character Bernadine, played phenomenally by Angela Bassett who had given years of her life to her husband as a homemaker, a mother to their children, and helped him build a successful career for him to leave her for a white woman. <laughs> the pain in Bernadine's eyes, the hysterics she demonstrated in the closet, tearing down clothes and shoes and setting fire to the car, now lives on in meme infamy. But this was a deeply relatable character to so many women who felt they put everything into their marriages and were abandoned. Not Gonna Cry is a triumphant blues song that challenges that pain, refusing the tears despite the hurt. Mary sang it as if she was an instrument to Bernadine's anguish and all the women who were in their darkest hour. Although Mary hadn't even been married yet, she sang it like she knew exactly what Bernadine had experienced. She was able to get into character and give the song the nuanced depth that it deserved. This song became a huge hit for Mary and pushed her career into new territory. Agreed. This is what happens when a soundtrack is perfectly crafted for the film journey you're about to embark on. It, it matches so beautifully well, and it's such a great song. It is, it is. For my next pick, Tell Me by Drew Hill. Talk about an entrance into the R&B music scene. If you were one of the folks who saw the video before you heard the song on the radio, you saw this quartet of young men from Baltimore hopping in synchronized fashion, singing with the fiery conviction of church boys who just wanted us to tell them what we wanted so they could satisfy our desires. Drew Hill, especially with this first album, felt like a kindred spirit to Jodeci and Silk for good measure. I mean, if you heard the song first on the radio, you might have mistaken Cisco's vocals for KC's of Jodeci. They're just as raw, gritty, and churchy. I remember someone arguing with me that this was Jodeci, 
until they saw the video, of course. In this endless ocean of male R&B groups of the 90s, Drew Hill were able to create distinction primarily because of their energy. The live wire presence of Cisco with his platinum blonde hair, who often sang lead along with jazz, helped set them apart. This first single, just as Silk did with Freak Me, was a gospel-flavored sex jam about submitting to the total satisfaction of a lover. But they were more suggestive than explicit. What I absolutely love about this song is that they emphasize the key ingredient in intimacy, which is communication. They were like, tell me what you want. There's honestly nothing sexier than that. <laughs> Literally. I'm so glad you brought them up because I was in a panic when we were in the planning phases. <laughs> I remember 1996 was the year we get Drew Hill. And I was just like, oh my God, where do we place them? What do we do? And how do we talk about them? You are so right. They do sound like Jodeci. And it makes sense that someone could easily mistake them. <laughs> but there's still something so uniquely Drew Hill that I love about them as well. That's so true. They do have their own place in all of this, which is amazing. And speaking of another male group that has their own place in all of this, I chose the Only You remix by 112 featuring Notorious B.I.G. and Mace. Ashley and I have been trying to tell y'all the 90s were the most fruitful decade for male R&B groups ever. Endless, it seems. How does the group even stand apart from the pack at this point? and not become a one-hit wonder, or just lost in the shuffle. Looking back, I'm honestly impressed by how many male R&B groups were not one-hit wonders. 112, a quartet on the Bad Boy label, debuted with the single Only You. But as we've said before, those remixes often became bigger than the original versions and became cultural touchstones. The Only You remix featuring Notorious B.I.G. and Mace was one of those moments. Another major hit for Bad Boy Records, Puffy, with his signature classic soul sampling and an eye for perfect collaborations, gave these brothers a hit that still reverberates to this day. You can see the influence of Jodeci and Boys to Men in 112. They were soulful singers who could be both street and gentlemanly. Their music was primarily hip-hop soul. But they also were deeply romantic balladeers. On their debut album, they blend hip-hop soul with gushing romantic ballads. On this remix, Biggie delivers another quotable opening rap verse like the skilled lyricist he was, clever and witty at all times. And we have Mace, who makes his rap debut here, with a boyishly cute yet thugged out style and mumbling voice that continues to influence rappers today. This remains one of my favorite R&B songs of the 90s, and it always brings me back to my best memories of the time. You know, this is the year I started driving, <laughs> and I remember blasting this song when I was flying down the interstate with my friend Chris. Shout out to Chris. I can't believe we both had childhood friends named Chris. Well, I can't believe that, but... <laughs> All I have to add here is that I love when 112 played, like, they were like Q's cousins, who was Fredro Star, for those who don't know. They were on Moesha, yes. the two-parter episode, where it was like the concert jammy jam or whatever they had. And they were trying to get a record deal. And then they play, they did Only You on stage because Kim and Yeezy were trying to get into the, to the concert and couldn't. <laughs> there was like just a whole <laughs> string of shenanigans. But when they finally got in, they wanted to see somebody perform. So it was 112, you know, obviously they weren't 112 on the show, but they did, they did only you. 
And I'm assuming that was like a marketing thing, but it was still really cute and nice to kind of see 112 do it. I do love this song also very much as well. I do remember listening to it too, but I did not have a car. (laughs) (laughs) I used it on my my way to and from school or downtown on the weekends. It just has that bounce to it. It makes you feel good instantly. That's why I love it so much. (laughs) And another song that is a great feel-good song I chose Touch Me, Tease Me by Case featuring Mary J. Blige and Foxy Brown. This is the second single release from Case on his self-titled debut album. The song features background vocals from Mary J. Blige and a guest spot rap feature from Foxy Brown, who had made a name for herself with rap features and dropped her own debut album in 1996 as well. The song samples the 1985 song PSK, What Does It Mean? by Schoolie D. A perfect sample here, in my opinion. This song is quintessential hip-hop soul. I love Mary's background vocals. Her voice makes the song really shine. And now we are firmly in a moment where R&B is more hypersexualized and explicit. Hip-hop is definitely influencing R&B content. I'd say the lyrics of this song lean more heavily on the suggestive side, not overly explicit, aside from Foxy Brown's rap verses, of course. <laughs> and again... R&B and hip-hop are starting to become inseparable. R&B songs are constantly featuring rap artists now and vice versa. This song, featured on the Nutty Professor soundtrack, was a huge hit for Case, and I think it's one of the most memorable R&B songs of the decade. In a decade filled with memorable R&B songs. Child, we were spoiled. I feel like the word spoiled comes up so much in my drafts working on this episode, but again, I concur, because it's true. My funniest memory of this song was my friend Cherie because they played this song so much that her disdain every time it came on was so amusing. I remember being out back <laughs> when we played outside and like somebody was it was either was playing it from like their radio from the from either the window or the car or somebody's car and her face and I'm just like it's okay we don't have to listen to it we can go somewhere else. It was really funny. I never got sick of the song like she did. I still love listening to it. It was certainly one of the most memorable songs during this time, absolutely. I can't not get into it every time I hear it, because especially the opening, like if I were a wrestler, this would be my intro music every time I came out (laughs) to the mat. And I could totally see you as a wrestler, (laughs) but that might be another another podcast for another time. (laughs) So my final song is Never Too Busy by Kenny Lattimore. So it was really hard to pick these five songs, as we mentioned, so many great songs in 1996. But after careful consideration, I realized I had to talk about Kenny Lattimore's Never Too Busy. It is my favorite Kenny Lattimore song and continues to get a lot of play for me to this day. And honestly, we just don't discuss Kenny Lattimore enough. A true R&B crooner whose entire career has been cemented around smooth adult contemporary R&B and soul. Never Too Busy is so smooth, so soulful, and vibrant. Kenny's vocals are strong and assuring. Just like the lyrics, he wants to remind his lady that he is never too busy for her. I like how this song explores male interiority. He sings that he has things on his mind. And despite what he has going on, he still has time for her. I think that's why I love it so much. It's about that stage in a relationship where a couple is still figuring out how to dedicate time and space to one another. And he continues to reassure his woman that he is there when she needs him. 
I know some of y'all remember that Michael Jordan documentary from a couple years ago, The Last Dance, and the meme of Jordan listening to his headphones, nodding his head intensely while he's in his happy place. And then somebody asks him what he's listening to. And he's like, Kenny Lattimore. (laughs) It's such a great moment. I mean, and this might be the only time I'll ever relate to Michael Jordan. (laughs) Talk about that. So, oh my God, we have refrained from not singing. I want to sing Never Too Busy. (laughs) I love that song. I love it. In the vein of the sound of Shantae's I Will Survive, this is how I feel about Kenny's Never Too Busy. They there's a they have mm-hmm. there's something in both of those songs that feel very similar to me. And again, that's why I say 1996, because that's where like I remember hearing both of these songs. I just love the way it sounds. His voice was made for this track. I love that you called him a crooner, because that's exactly what he is. Mm-hmm. And I'm just I'm so glad we we did the switch up with this. Yes, me too. And along with all the honorable mentions made by Ashley, I also want to add a few. Stilo by 702, Get On Up by Jodeci, Every Time I Close My Eyes by Babyface featuring Mariah Carey and Kenny G, Lady by D'Angelo, Missing You by Brandy, Tamia, Gladys Knight, Shaka Khan for the Set It Off soundtrack, My Boo by the Ghost Town DJs, and A Thin Line Between Love and Hate by H-Town featuring Shirley Murdoch and Roger Troutman from Martin Lawrence's film of the same name, which is also another really wonderful cover. So I want to add Lady by D'Angelo, of course, but also the remix and the video with the remix was very... Oh, yes. I loved it. I think it's the first time I saw Erykah Badu. And then... Mm, That's right. Yeah, I thought it was adorable that Faith Evans had her her daughter in it as well when she was a little girl. So she was cute. so cute. And she's like singing the lyrics to it. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I love Missing You. I love that song. And I bought I remember buying that single and I wore it out. <laughs> wore it out. And of course I love My Boo by Ghost Town DJs. Again, that's I love that Southern bounce. I love it a lot. They it's I special. Love it. Mm-hmm. School is in session. So with our legacy segment, we just want to have longer conversations regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. I told you she was going to come up again. How could she not? A rose, I heard a radio host call her once, a visionary, naturally, as an artist, performer, and entertainer, she may have single-handedly orchestrated the forward sound of R&B. The next level, the new world of funk, I heard Missy Misdemeanor Elliott introduce. The future of what it all sounds like now, established 1996. Like any young bud, Aaliyah wanted room to blossom on her own terms a record label removed from her debut, amassing a crew of collaborators unlike prior. Diane Warren, Jermaine Dupri, Vincent Herbert, Craig King, Naughty by Nature's KG, Daryl Simmons, and Rodney Jerkins. But there was an eclipsable puzzle piece to this refresher journey yet to be placed. For me, it begins with a music video or two. 
the gothic pangs of If Your Girl Only Knew, and the apocalyptic portrait of One in a Million. In If Your Girl, I again saw enviable fantasy. Black and white visions of shinier black leather on a hog. Color comes into play only when it matters. When Aaliyah enters the room, she glows. Her aura alone, a clarion call only to the object of her desire. Striking red submitting to baseline lust, the green accentuating the broader atmosphere of again wishing I was there, with a mindset of being the baddest chick in the room without even trying. Never arrogant, never deceptive, always alluring. One in a million, the mesmerizing Matt Max set in Detroit aesthetics, contrasted by cloudy blue hues, a great set for the newly known Genuine as Aaliyah's devoted admirer. Also making cameos are Timbaland, the beat maker, and Missy, the mighty writer, the two responsible for these chart denters. The two plus Aaliyah, who reached into other dimensions of sound to become a trio to take all these matters of R&B to that next level mentioned. It's a sound that is easily described as futuristic, incorporating beeps and blips people maybe only heard in Star Wars films before, and beats that consistently trip over themselves that melt groovy. Words that had a flair, a directness, modern blues perfected for a postmodern worldview. And then a voice that rolled, shaked, and whistled lullabies and rustled earnestly. Honey-soaked, as I mentioned prior, and full of authority now with her second album titled One in a Million. Released on August 27th when she was 17, critics swooned, and listeners absorbed the sonics and style as they mirrored the mechanics like oxygen. I wasn't kidding when I said some of us wanted to be Aaliyah. I saw Black girls all around me sing her songs in class to the point of distraction. Literally stopped to mimic her dance moves in the streets on their way home. Yes, it soared on the charts and shattered all trepidatious attitudes. It was impressive and authentic and undeniably playable. Aaliyah, the admirable icon from my generation the stark reminder that nothing in life is promised to us, but we do have the power to choose to always strive to be the very best of who we are. And she was the rainbow in the midst of monochrome. Wow, Ashley. First, I just got to say that was incredibly well stated in terms of just honoring Aaliyah, the legacy and the lineage that she has left us with. And yes, I was one of those Black girls who wanted to be just like Aaliyah. And I mean, this one in a million album was truly next level. Progressive R&B with lots of hip hop swag. The house that Aaliyah, Timberland, and Missy built is still the foundation for the trajectory of much of contemporary R&B still coming out today. I love this album so much. And I just want to add that Never Coming Back is one of my favorite songs on the album as well. I love the fake live audience reminiscent of Betty Wright's Tonight is the Night. No one sang a Missy Penn song like Aaliyah. Aaliyah just really understood all the emotional nuances of a song. And it's really evident on this particular song to me. One in a Million, the song, sounds like the music you'd hear on a spaceship. I love it so much. And If Your Girl Only Knew is another favorite of mine. And I love Little Kim cameo in the video. Aaliyah is just so deeply missed still. But I'm just glad we can finally stream her music and new generations can marvel at her greatness. She was truly something special. Oh, yeah. And it's all evidenced 
with so many newer artists sampling her work, Mm -hmm. come to find out, she definitely set a template for what I'm going to just describe as Gen Z R&B, I'll call it. (laughs) It's really fascinating to like hear that Mm -hmm. lineage right now. And then in 96, there was a unit of trendsetters for another generation that came together for an album that had been long anticipated. Oh, yes, indeed. You can't talk about cultural blueprints without talking about new edition when it comes to the lineage of R&B music. In one of our early episodes of the podcast, I spoke about how Boyz II Men and Jodeci became templates for the male R&B groups in the 90s that came after them. Well, we wouldn't even have Jodeci or Boyz II Men without the influence and impact of New Edition in the 80s. New Edition, Bobby Brown, Ronnie DeVoe, Ricky Bell, Michael Bivens, and Ralph Tresvant of Roxbury, Massachusetts, blazed on the music scene like a contemporary version of the Jackson 5. They were very young, with an incredible amount of charisma and talent, with a string of now-classic R&B hits. Eventually, Bobby Brown would leave the group and go on to pop stardom, becoming one of the pioneering artists of the New Jack Swing sound, and creating his own template for many male R&B artists that emerged after him. He was eventually replaced in the group by Johnny Gill, whose mature vocals gave the group a much more mature sound and even more hit records. Eventually, the group would disband. Ralph went solo. Johnny went solo. And Mike, Rick, and Ronnie formed Belle Biv DeVoe, all of them having varying levels of chart-topping success, a feat that is actually still historic. Very few groups disband, and all members are successful. If you've watched their BET biopic, read magazine articles, or watched interviews, their breakup was filled with the familiar themes of ego, money, fame, etc. It's a story as old as time. But there's something really beautiful when groups can reunite and reunite triumphantly. In 1996, all the members of New Edition reunited for Home Again, which went on to sell over 2 million copies, being their biggest commercial success, debuting at number one on the Billboard 200 charts and reaffirming their impact and legacy. With production by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Jermaine Dupree, and Puff Daddy, among others, Home Again was a sensational album that allowed all members to shine in their own memorable ways. The first single release was the hip-hop soul jam Hit Me Off, which was an excellent way for them to reintroduce themselves to the current evolving music scene and gain a new generation of fans in the process. And side note, I love the video, which was shot like a spy thriller. It's just really fun stuff. I love the up-tempo songs as much as the slow jams here. These guys are all in their bag on this album. They sound like they have a little something to prove. And with the short attention spans of listeners, they reminded us all of their significant impact on R&B. Standout songs like I'm Still In Love With You, Tighten Up, You Don't Have To Worry, How Do You Like Your Love Served, One More Day, and my personal favorite, Shop Around. Honestly, it's one of those rare albums I can play all the way through. Production is just so solid, and they all sound really good vocally. So rare when groups unite and can succeed in this way, both artistically and commercially. 
But unfortunately, the reunion was short-lived as group tensions emerged on tour and turned into an unfortunate brawl when Ronnie was trying to get Bobby off stage when he went over his time on his solo set. It saddens me even though these things often happen with groups. With Home Again, perfectly titled by the way, it was a beautiful glimpse of New Edition making such a remarkable album together and for at least one shining moment reminding themselves and all of us how tremendous they can be as a unit. This was a moment and one that was made grand and the record sales, music, video, airplay, etc. proved that people wanted more from New Edition and I remember hearing Hit Me Off so much. <laughs> you Don't Have to Worry is my personal favorite. And yeah, that old tale unfortunately was on repeat for the group, but it seems that today they're all getting along just fine with touring. Mm-hmm. It's really great to see that they can come together and still perform successfully for loyal fans. Like the Brownstone single, I heard it through the grapevine are just some insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So Robin, what you done heard through the grapevine? I done heard that Andre Harrell didn't think Mary J. Blige was the right choice for Not Gonna Cry. According to reports, Andre Harrell apparently thought that Mary was too young at 23 to sing a song about the anguish of a bad marriage. He didn't think she had the experience yet. Thankfully, Babyface was able to convince him otherwise because Mary was perfect for this song, which granted her her first top 10 pop single. I always say part of being an artist is playing a role, being able to personify even if you didn't directly experience something. True. How else would he have wanted that song to be sung It may be a lapse in judgment in having insight into Mary as an artist. To me, she always exuded the competency to emotionally and technically deliver on a song of this caliber. Now, I can't believe she was only 23, (laughs) but that's because I was 13 during this time. So everyone seemed so much older so that there was no question for me that Mary would sing this. But even now looking back, yes, Mary without question, because you're right. One, playing a role, and two, we need to at times give youth credit for internalizing more than older folks are willing to admit. Mm. Like the old idea of kids know. (laughs) Parents (laughs) or grown folks aren't as good as hiding certain things as they think, and we internalize that, and we can play that role and exude that pain. So true. So this was our look back on 1996. Please visit rhythmandschooledpodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling and get to know us. We fly. Our email is the411 at rhythmandschooledpodcast.com. If you have feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s, we'll be sure to read and share on the show in the future. Also follow the podcast on Instagram at rhythm underscore and underscore schooled. And be sure to listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and now on YouTube at Rhythm Schooled Podcast as well. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. Until next time. Peace.